Super Talk Mississippi media production. And now it's Coast View with Ricky Matthews. Brought to you by J. Allen Toyota and AGJ Systems and Networks on Super Talk 103.1 FM. Welcome to Coast View, the show that celebrates every single day the people who make this place, coastal Mississippi, such an amazing place to live work and play. I have a very special guest that we'll get to here in just a second. Just want to share a couple of quotes with you that someone shared. This one came from Philosophy of Life. You've heard it before. And this is one that I think we've all heard probably more than once. But it's uh, this. Insanity is doing the same thing again and again, but expecting different results. Uh, I just think that's a good one. You know, if we really, really want to aspire to do new things in our lives, to reach new goals, we have to Make ourselves uncomfortable and try different things. Okay, and here's one other. And I I love this one. This was from my friend Susan Grigg. She used to work heavily for the Keeseland News when I was publisher at uh, the Sun-Herald. She's just such a good person and has such a great heart. But she posted this. Travel is not a reward for working. It's education for living. It's education for living. Travel is education for life. I love that. And for people who travel to coastal Mississippi, it is a great education for them. Whether I'm talking to people like uh, a couple who's doing business in Ocean Springs who came from California, all the myths that they had about Mississippi were blown up because once they got here, they learned how mu- amazing this place was. Or people like Josh Morgan, top hurricane chaser in the world who's living in Bay St. Louis during the, um, during the hurricane season. You know, he's originally from New York. He lives in California. He's living here uh, during the hurricane season. And what he says about this place is so myth-dispelling. I love when people come here and see for themselves that in this part of the world, the people are special. And what makes us special is that resiliency that I talk about all the time. And we've had to kind of knock down political lines and all that other stuff with very challenging situations. And in those moments, it's neighbor helping neighbor. It's a friend helping friend and family member helping family member. Currently, it's uh, just about every community in coastal Mississippi, churches and nonprofits and municipalities through the One Coast effort, um, helping people in, in, in Louisiana and the Hurricane Ida recovery effort. So, you know what? We're so lucky to be here. And uh, people who come here, they see what's so special, what's in the heart and soul of, uh, of Mississippians. So without any further ado, let me move over to my friend, someone who I have actually worked with for I don't know how many years, Kristen. I don't want to. I don't want to. want to jinx you or anything. But she almost fifteen, uh, I would say. It, yeah, it's, it's been, been a while. long time. Yeah. It's Kristen LaBeouf. She's the executive director for the American Heart Association, and I'm looking forward to visiting with her. How are you doing, Kristen? I am doing well, and I really appreciate this opportunity. And certainly enjoyed and appreciated those quotes that you shared, and and got me thinking. It it, it made me think about my own work and. Um, the work of the American Heart Association, and it really, it, it's right. It's, it struck a chord. Well, as you know, when I was publisher of the Sun-Herald, and even before that, I was always supportive of the American Heart Association. Um, I believe in its mission. I have uh, coronary, coronary artery disease in my family. My mother had a stroke. You know, my father died at a young age. We have numerous family members who've had struggles. And because of, of watching their situation and knowing what my family, you know, heredity was, I 
worked really hard my entire life to exercise and take care of myself and try to live a, a healthy life. And it's really paid off as I've gotten older. But I remember those times working with the American Heart Association and seeing how focused you guys were on teaching people and addressing the challenges that people have to to be really in touch with themselves and know when to go see a doctor and know how to deal with difficult situations and know how to help live a healthy life. I know all those things about you and I look forward to talking to about them here in just a second. But before we go into all that, what I remember about you, Kristen, when I was the publisher of the Sun Herald was, first of all, you were very hard to say no to. You know, that was, that was, that was for sure because you were very passionate about what you do. I mean, yes. you, you were a young person then that was very dedicated to the work that you were involved in, and you didn't mind coming to my office and asking me for help. Yeah. That's always been in you. So I, I think that goes probably to the way you were raised and the values that you were taught and all of that. Mm -hmm. But I want to talk a little bit about you. I just want to yeah. kind of take take a step back for a second. Tell me about, um, uh, well, you live in Diamond Head now, but you, yeah. you grew up in Hancock County, right? I did. I did. So I am um, a military brat. My dad is a retired Marine. And so my family's originally from New Orleans and we moved around a lot, which afforded me some amazing opportunities and experiences really formed who I am. I don't ever meet a stranger now just because that's, you, you never did growing up. So when my dad retired, um, we had a summer home in Bay St. Louis. And so we decided to move there. And um, it was, you know, certainly the best thing that could have ever happened to us because it was the perfect place to grow up. It, it truly, truly was, um, you know, just a, a two minute stroll to the beach and to Old Town. And I went to Our Lady Academy and, um, and so I could ride my bike to school or I could walk to school. And it was so perfect. And it, 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 I just have such wonderful memories of growing up in Bay St. Louis. And um, frankly, that's why my husband and I decided to, to move back um, after college, after we got married. When we started thinking about having kids because I wanted to give them that same childhood, that same opportunity. And and they have it. And so I'm I'm happy about that. I, I remember there's so many stories I can tell about my engagement with Hancock County while I was working, not just as the publisher of the Sun-Herald and before that, but after Hurricane Katrina, mm. uh, being involved in the public meetings there after Hurricane Katrina and watching efforts. For example, I remember uh, that Mississippi State was going to do a study on bringing Waveland and uh, and I think, let's see, I guess it was Bay St. Louis together into one community or so, something like that. <laughs> And uh, what we learned was that buildings don't, you know, don't make a community. The people do. And the people of, of well, this is true of all, all along coastal Mississippi, but especially true for Hancock County, given its historic perspective around Hurricane Camille. And then, of course, Katrina, you know, being ground zero for the worst natural disasters in American history, you know, in its time. And the, the challenge that people had and the sense that, you know, we we can never leave here. We're not going to leave here. We're going to rebuild our community, and we're going to be stronger for it. And and what that I mean, you already had a cool place. I mean, it was already kind of a suburb of New Orleans in a lot of respects. You know what the influence on food and culture and all that. But this, when you add to that the resilience as part of that community, and you look at where it is today and what it's been able to do with this rebirth since Katrina, and it's hard not to be connected to that, isn't it? Oh my gosh. Well, it just and I love even, you know, now I have kids, right? And so um, my oldest is a seventh grader at Our Lady Academy. And 
it has tickled me because the things that I used to do with my best friends, my my classmates after school on a Friday are the same things that she's doing now, right? And it um, it is so it's so fun to watch and so fun to see. And it's the people. It really, really is. And I'll never forget. So, so of course, we lost everything in Katrina, right? I mean, that our house that had been through Camille, and that was our benchmark, right? So, so when we're evacuating, it's like, okay, we had, you know, a foot of water in this part of the house for Camille. So let's make sure that we're we're planning accordingly for Katrina because surely it won't be as bad. Um, and so uh, I, I just remember it was devastating, a devastating time, of course, but how everyone came together and, hey, is this your punch bowl? It was on our property. Is this, is this y'all's or uh, neighbors helping neighbors and neighbors coming over and like we're literally sitting in our yard with a fork trying to dig up anything that we could um, of our families and, and people coming. I'm going to pull up a cinder block and sit next to you and, and help you with that. It's just such an amazing community. And I'm so proud of Bay St. Louis and how far Bay St. Louis has come in all of Hancock County, truly, because I love living in Diamond Head. But I remember Jody Compretta years ago had said, do you think we're building this bridge for Bay St. Louis, uh, the 2004 Bay St. Louis or the 2024 Bay St. Louis? We need to grow. And it really struck me. And I, at, that, at that point, it was like, wow, we are going to be different. But look how amazing, you know, and, and how much of a gem and a jewel Hancock County is. So I'm proud of that. I'm proud of that. Um, I, I'm proud to live in Diamond Head and, and just love the coast. You should, you know, uh, such a great story, and so many people reflect on stories on, on Katrina the way that you just did. You know, the day after Katrina, I left, and I didn't come home for nine months. I mean, I was here at night, you know, and the rest of the time I was focused on rebuilding the newspaper and helping the governor with the rebuilding effort. And it was, but it took, you know, it took a team effort between my wife Anne and me. But one of the things she did, we found um, a jewelry box in, in the in the pool after the storm and they were clean they found one of my boats was in the pool we didn't know what had happened to it and they started cleaning the pool out and there's the boat at the bottom of the pool i mean all kinds of stuff but she found this jewelry box and it had a credit card in it and you know she she we said she said it somewhere and then she's about a month or so after the storm she said i'm gonna go try to figure out who this person is so they she looked them up where they lived is on the other side of the bay about a block or two in you know but on the other side of the bay and she went there and what she, okay, the way she told the story is a young lady in her 30s uh, with no hair that had been going through cancer treatment answers the door and Anne has the box in her hand and she immediately starts to cry. Oh. And she says, that was my grandmother's from England. Mm -hmm. And, you know, but everybody has stories like that, Kristen. Yes. Everybody found yes. stuff. They wanted to find oh, yeah. who got it. We found a chest. You know, that we found who belonged to, uh, man, it was nowhere near. <laughs> I can't believe how far that chest went to get to our place. But same everybody has stories like that. Yeah, same happened to us. It was a box that my grandfather had some his World War II, some mementos in. It was found probably two miles away. And about six months after Katrina, my dad got a call. And, and, and it's you know, and especially when your family members have passed, those are the things you have of them and, and have to, to, you know, hold on to. And just to have that, you know, having thought you lost it all and just at least having something. It's, yeah. It's, but when you, have, when, you, when you have to rebuild and you simultaneously have a role to play in helping the community mm -hmm. rebuild, 
it makes it almost impossible to leave. It makes it becomes part of yeah. your heart and soul, How and you, you can't change that. And um, it's the thing that kept me here. I had great opportunities to leave and go away mm -hmm. in my career, and I always wanted to have the base station in here. I, the mm -hmm. base station was always going to be here, and I made no apologies for that because I love this place. Anyway. This is Kristen LaBeouf. She is the executive director of the American Heart Association. A been a friend of mine for many, many, many years. When we come back, we'll get the latest on the American Heart Association. We'll talk through what some of their goals are. We'll share some important stories along the way. But I hope, I hope you stay with Coast us and uh, enjoy as I do. It's brought to you by J. Allen Toyota on I-10 Exit 38 Gulfport. See all the incredible inventory at allentoyota.com. And remember, when you think Toyota, think J. Allen Toyota. Toyota. This is Coast View with Ricky Matthews on Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1. One of the cool things about hosting Coast View, where people people always ask me, what you know, what, what do you get the most from? Well, I get to connect with old friends. I get to make new friends. I get to hear amazing stories and share amazing stories of what it takes to make a community tick. And someone like Kristen LaBeouf from the American Heart Association, somebody I've known for a long time, who's been working in the trenches all these years to make a difference in the community. I mean, she inspired me back when she was this young person in my, in my office asking for us to be committed to some effort that she was involved in, and she continues to inspire me today. And uh, so what I want to do for a second, Kristen, is talk about the basics of the American Heart Association. What is it? For someone who, you know, they've heard it, but they really don't know what it is. Let's start from scratch. What is the yeah. American Heart Association? So the American Heart Association is um, the world's leading volunteer health organization. Our whole goal is to ensure that people live longer, healthier lives period. And people in all parts of the United States of America, no matter how big, no matter how small, we want everyone to live a healthy, long, quality life. Great goal. So you've got a, you've got a national and international structure and you have a local structure. Explain yeah. that. Well, so the American Heart Association, we're headquartered in Dallas, right? Um, and we're near 100 years old. In fact, in 2024, we're going to celebrate our 100th anniversary as an organization. And we've done amazing work in near 100 years. Um, but it really all starts from the grassroots level and engaging people in our community and empowering people in our community to take charge of their health and to help others do the same. And so um, we are based in Pass Road uh, in Gulfport, and um, we've been in our in this office for probably about 14 years now, this, this location. And so um, we work in coastal Mississippi, uh, the six coastal counties of South Mississippi. We also do work in coastal Alabama and northwest Florida out of our office here. And um, we have a small but mighty staff who work with volunteers and donors, companies, um, all across that area to improve the health of the community. You know, one of the things, you know, just to kind of uh, add a little bit of color to the to the the basic need that you guys that, that you guys have to address. I was having a conversation once with a, a guest about the Mississippi Delta. I have a place up in the Mississippi Delta and spend a considerable amount of time there, especially at this time of year. 
Yeah, I love the Delta. But when you start to understand the problems of the Delta, you know, the economic challenges they have, the health challenges they have, if you do if you do the health challenges within the context of the pandemic, it starts to really create a lot of focus to how big some of the challenges are. And one of the things I learned, and you know this well, and you can speak to this, but poor people often, it's about access to healthy food. And I learned that the vast majority of them uh, the nearest store is the convenience store, so they're just yeah. buying what would you know what would be a snack for us or maybe a quick bite for us. It's literally their staple, and that's not a healthy approach. And if we're in, of course, then COVID comes along, and it in this, you know it it is not fair to people who may have a little bit overweight or people who may have diabetes. Uh, in fact, it's, it's brutal to those people. Mm -hmm. And one of the solutions beyond just coronary heart disease is uh, you know, of, of living a healthy life is it makes you more resilient in a situation like when a pandemic mm -hmm. comes along. But this is something you give a lot of thought to, isn't it? You know, it really is. And so we, we've done a lot of work on awareness. You know, we want people to know what are the signs and symptoms of of a heart attack? What are the signs and symptoms of a stroke? And what can you do to help minimize um, your risk for cardiovascular disease and stroke? But we do that and, and we've made tremendous strides. I mean, tremendous strides. But then we also have to look at, to your point, what are those indirect uh, factors? You know, nutrition security or access to food. Is that what's, is that a barrier to health? Is transportation a barrier to health? Is where you live or your zip code, is that prohibiting you from living a healthy, long life? And so, you know, you're right. And, and initially when COVID came around, I can remember us talking internally about, you know, and this is the very early stages of COVID. Oh, this seems more respiratory, respiratory. You know, this seems more about the lungs. And so maybe there's really not, you know, for, for a, a very brief period, it was like, well, maybe this is not anything to do with the heart or, or the brain. And then as it progressed, as we started to see um, just the devastating impacts to people and what those common threads were, you know, we were seeing, wait, these are people who have heart disease. These are people who have high blood pressure. These are people who have diabetes. And why are they more... Um, impacted than than someone who who does not, and how does that all work together? And so, I can say just having been with the organization for as long as I have, how proud I am of our work in the COVID space and being a science driven organization, and that's the power of of what we do or, or our our, uh, our our work so far. You know, a lot of what we knew and a lot of what we invested in as at, from the research perspective, we were then able to to use in the COVID space um, around uh, effective treatments and, you know, helping when we started talking about oxygen, uh, ventil ventilating patients and that being a treatment, you know, how do we help our frontline workers ensure that you know, they're up to speed on the latest trainings and, and how to oxygenation and ventilation modules for, for healthcare workers who are filling in for our overworked healthcare workers. It just... You know, I mean, it was, it was, it's just been such an interesting almost two years in this pandemic space and how quickly things have evolved from, oh, this is just a lung issue to no, 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 this is a, a cardiovascular issue. This is a stroke issue. This is a healthy living issue. And people who are living a healthier life 
are having better outcomes than those who are, you know, impacted in such a profound way. Well, you do it. You you do your work in so many different ways. I'll come back to the board in just a minute because you really got a dream team around you. You know that. Yeah. Well, you're doing it so many different. One is the Heart Walk. Uh, I had the pleasure of being the chairman of the Heart Walk back. Maybe it was 2008, 2009. I don't remember exact day. I left the Sun Herald in 2009, but I remember I had been working. I've worked out weights for 40 years. I've always been very healthy. But I remember when I was um, asked to do the heart walk i said you know i'm going i had a lower back issue so i wasn't able to run as much so i said i'm going to set out to learn to, to see if i can manage the pain in my back and go i'm going to go run the heart walk that was my goal to go run the heart walk and it's what four point something miles i can't remember it's, the exact. A, it's a 5k so 3.1 miles okay so i i, I, I okay so <clears throat> i just set out to get ready. And I went on this kind of personal journey. And I want you to know that since then, I would, I'll check my app here in just a second, but I have, oh, my app actually had to restart my phone. So I have to go back and reload it, but I've run thousands of miles since then. <clears throat> I do the bike, uh, probably average 30 to 50 miles a week in walking, running, or, um, or riding the bike. And um, I just went on this, it was this kind of personal mission, but I used yeah. the heart walk as sort of the, the thing that pushed me yeah. to say, okay, I've got the weightlifting thing done, but I got to get some aerobic in my life, mm -hmm. especially as I get older. And I did. And I have to tell you, man, it's, re it's, it's really changed my life from a health perspective. I mean, I just feel really good. And a lot of the things I do, whether it's offshore fishing or hunting in the hills, it requires you to be in shape. And the older mm -hmm. I get, the more difference it makes for people my age who are not doing Absolutely. the things I'm doing, they're not nearly as vigorous as I am. So Absolutely. You, you hear that all the time, though, don't you? Yeah. No. And, you know, it's interesting you bring up the heart walk because we hear that often around heart walk time. People will reach out to us and say, when is it? You know, and so it is October 2nd. Um, it's coming up. But people will ask and they'll say, OK. And they almost use that as a the end goal. All right. I need to get myself together or I need to get, you know, get moving a little more so that I can do the whole 3.1 miles or, you know, and so, and, and, and walking is um, the easiest and most effective way to, to get in shape and to get, get your physical activity going. It's also, well, we also look at, and speaking of COVID, just the mental health aspect to your physical health. And it's a way to get yourself, just your, your mind clear and just grounded and, you know, help manage that stress. Um, you know, it's a great way. And we're approaching a, a cool front coming in soon. So it's the, the weather will we'll cooperate and, and it's a great time to get out. I wear a Fitbit. I used to wear an Apple Watch, but the Fitbit, the battery lasts a little bit longer. But I track all my activities. And I'm, I'm here to tell you that what Robbie D'Angelo says, who's on the show all the time, you know, great fitness coach, but human optimization coach is really what he is. But he said, you know, one of the most important things we could do if we really want to get serious, don't go set big goals to bench press 300 you know, pounds or run 100 miles. Just go for a walk and yep. drink a lot of water. Just yep. make your goal, drink a lot of water and go for a walk and just keep doing that. And before long, you can then set some other goals. When you watch the, the cardiac aspect of a brisk walk, mm -hmm. it's just as beneficial as if you were running. Yeah. 
And yeah. and we know that. And, and you know, again, I, I learned a lot more about that through my association with the American Heart Association. And I, I think, you know, you guys do a great job of teaching people why we need to pay attention to these things, especially if you've got cardiovascular disease in your family like I do. I mean, that's mm-hmm. just that's just the reality of that. Mm-hmm. So when you know you're helping people, it makes it easy to be involved in an effort like this, isn't it? It is. Well, and that's why I started with the Heart Association, because my family's been profoundly impacted by cardiovascular disease and stroke, profoundly impacted. And so I had worked in nonprofit work and I had worked at Children's Hospital in New Orleans, an amazing experience there. And, and it's not easy. Nonprofit work is not easy. Right. And so um, I thought if I'm going to continue to do this, let me align with an organization that I know my family has been impacted by. And it so, makes a difference when you can say you have dear family members that have been impacted and that there's something we can do. It's never too late to get started. Never, ever too late. Hey, when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Kristen LaBeouf, who is the executive director for the American Heart Association here in coastal Mississippi and someone I have admired for an awful long time. When we come back, we'll talk about some of their goals. Listen live or on demand and watch episodes of Coast View on your laptop, desktop, or on your phone or tablet by going to supertalkmsgulfcoast.com. And now it's Coast View with Ricky Matthews. Brought to you by J. Allen Toyota and AGJ Systems and Networks on Supertalk 103.1 FM. Welcome back to Coast View. I have uh, the pleasure this morning of visiting with my dear friend, Kristen LaBeouf, who's the executive director for the American Heart Association. And we try to give you a sense of what the American Heart Association is, also a little bit about uh, about Kristen and why she's so committed, not only to this organization, but to giving back to this community. Like so many of, uh, so many of the rest of us, once you get uh, coastal Mississippi and all that it represents in your heart and soul, it's kind of hard to disconnect that. <laughs> a lot of people might go away, but their goal is to come back as quick as they can get here. And uh, and people who were, didn't get raised here, who come here, wonder what took them so long to get here. So that's kind of that's kind of Kristen's story. So let's um, let's let's come back to the American Heart Association. In the last the, in the last segment, I mentioned that you had sort of this dream team around you, but you really do have an unbelievably good board, don't you? We do. We are so blessed to have volunteers, amazing volunteers who believe in the work that we do, believe in the impact we have in the community and want to continue to help and further that. And so we've always had, um, like I said, amazing volunteers. And, And recently we said, you know, We've got amazing leaders with our Heart Walk and our Heart Gala and, and all of our, our core events, but we really wanted to, to take and elevate that too and say, what can we do across the coast and how can we leverage this, this volunteer passion to help you know, enhance our community, help build a healthier community? And so um, we established a, a local board of directors and Dorothy Shaw with English Shipbuilding is our, our board chair. And she's so amazing and so wonderful and so committed to the coast. Um, and so she's really helping to lead this effort and um, really bringing 
amazing volunteers, Mr. St. Pei and Johnny Atherton and Roy Anderson and Emory Mayfield. And uh, I mean, I would be remiss if I, you know, if I named any more, because I'm going to leave them out. Amazing volunteers who really want to help make a difference and help us um, not necessarily transition, you know, because our, our the work that we've been doing, we're going to continue to do the 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 work around policy change and the work on quality improvements in our in our healthcare and the work with our, our schools and students to help educate the next generation on the importance of living a healthy life and giving them the tools and resources they need. But also kind of going back to what I said earlier, how do we address those barriers? Those things that are stopping the people in our community from living their best, healthiest life. And so, um, you know, they're helping us to embark on this journey and we are so thankful for them. Yeah, I had the opportunity to meet with you guys recently and uh, was just so thrilled to reconnect with Dorothy Shaw. And it hit me that, you know, that someone said, you're, you're going to run out of people to talk to and coach you. And you never run out of people. There's so many hidden gems all over this community. They're doing amazing work and I love finding them. But reconnecting with Dorothy reminded me I have to get Dorothy on my on my show yeah. and talk to her. But what, what, I mean, she's been in the trenches in the community over all these years. And here she is, the chairman of your local board yeah. and just not missing a lick. I mean, good Lord. We're so lucky, aren't we, to have we so are. many committed leaders. Oh my gosh. Well, and, and, you know, we hear oftentimes, I hear from colleagues and peers across the country and, you know, about their volunteers and, and the amazing work that they're doing. And it's for us, it's the same group of people, right? The same group of people who are tremendously supportive and passionate about the work of the American Heart Association are the same group of people who are tremendously passionate and supportive of other organizations. And they really help make our community a better place. And so um, I, we're, again, we're fortunate to have just that wealth of knowledge and experience and the connection with other organizations and how can we work together to, to achieve our, our common missions. One of your goals is tele-CPR. Yeah. And you know, I'm a former paramedic. I was a, you know, went to the University of Alabama in Birmingham to paramedic school. My, and that was in pre-med. My goal was to be an emergency room physician. But I, I saw a lot of death and dying as a paramedic and realized with my type A personality, I may not make it if I stayed in that, in that uh, industry. But I went on to, you know, get an MBA, did an internship at the Sun-Herald along the way. The rest is history. But I never forgot how important what I learned in paramedic school, becoming an advanced paramedic and, you know, at, at working as a paramedic had many, many opportunities to do CPR successfully. Obviously, you know, you're not always successful. And then once I was not a paramedic anymore, had many opportunities to do CPR. And um, I mean, you can't overstate the importance of knowing how to do CPR, can you? No, you can't. And that's one of our, um, so the American Heart Association, it was our science and technology that developed the guidelines and it continues to the guidelines that CPR has performed. And We've done a lot of work around CPR, ensuring that um, our healthcare providers and our, our EMS and our first responders um, are up to date on their trainings and their techniques and have what they need to successfully perform that. And probably, I don't know, maybe 2012 time, um, the American Heart Association updated guidelines that said hands-only CPR or bystander CPR can be 
just as critical in saving someone's life as your traditional CPR. And so on the local level, we went on this whole crusade to train as many people as we possibly could in hands-only CPR. I'm not a medical professional. I, um, you know, at, at just the thought of, of emergencies, you know, I my hat's off to our first responders who can just really act when they need to. And I always worried as a new parent, like, what if I needed to do this? What if I needed to, to give the Heimlich maneuver? Would I have what I need? Um, would I have the skills and the, and the wherewithal to perform, right? And so we went on this local crusade. We trained as many people as we possibly could. We've done CPR pop-ups just on hands-only CPR and equipping the average person, people like me who are not healthcare professionals and not first responders with the, the confidence and the skills they need to perform CPR until help can arrive, right? So we've provided training resources to schools. And I mean, just a lot. We worked with the legislature in 2014 to pass CPR as a mandatory requirement um, for high school graduation. You just need to know hands-only CPR. So every year we're adding 25,000 plus lifesavers uh, to the community throughout the state, right? And so we're, we're kind of moving to the next step and saying, this is wonderful, we're equipping people, but what can we do if someone goes into cardiac arrest and they call 911? And our, our first responders and our dispatchers are so amazing, but we also know that there may be a, a gap in time from when a, an ambulance or a first responder is dispatched when they actually arrive on the scene. How are we ensuring that the person who is there, who's calling 911, can, can do something, right? And so what we'd like to do is we would like to, to make, so tele-CPR is, is just that, right? It's providing high quality verbal instruction to the person on the other line on how to perform CPR. And it's critical because of what I just said, response times. Think about the rural parts of, of Harrison County. Think about the rural parts of Jackson County. I live in Hancock County. It would take me 25 or 30 minutes to get from Diamond Head to Burlington, you know, and, and how can we help empower and equip people in that, that split second, you know, truly critical moment. And so that's, that's going to be one of our, you know, part of what we do, we, there's a lot of things we do at the Heart Association. Part of what we do is work on policy. That's going to be one of the policies that we work on in the upcoming legislative session. And it's important because, and especially given now with response times being challenged due to COVID, I mean, our, our system is stressed and stretched thin. And so how can we make sure people who, who are in the moment calling 911 um, with someone who's in cardiac arrest, how can they have a chance to save their life? You know, when you look at the death rates due to out-of-hospital cardiac, uh, out cardiac arrest, you have an 11% chance of survival. Yeah, it's and not good. You have to have someone nearby. As, as you know, you had invited me to talk to your board about my recent experience with my granddaughter, yes. Mila, who was really, really ill. And um, what was interesting, well, not interesting, but what's important about that story is that I knew CPR, thank God. Um, the paramedics from Biloxi Fire Department got there pretty rapidly, but the ambulance took 15 minutes. Yeah. And, you know, of course, in the, as we sort of debrief after the, after the fact, uh, had I not known CPR and yeah. had 
they not gotten there so quickly, given the response time of the ambulance. I don't blame the ambulance company because no. they're just overwhelmed with COVID uh, cases. Um, you know, Mila may not have made it, and you know, that's the that's the one thing that that's what you wanted me to. That's the story you wanted me to tell your board. But the fact is that. You know, I saw a lot of things go right. I mean, the 911 operator talking to my wife, Ann, and talking her through, you know, wanting to be on the speakerphone so she could talk directly to me. But once Ann explained to her that I was doing mouth to mouth and, and that, you know, we had a, essentially best uh, under the circumstances control of the situation. But she kept there on the phone with my wife every step. of the, I need to find out who that woman was, actually. I need I'm going to find out who she is and thank her for, for being so doggedly determined to make make sure what was going on. And the other thing that was happening simultaneously is she was not only staying on the phone with Ann, with Ann describing what was happening, but she was describing that back to the paramedics at Biloxi Fire, Fire Department. So they knew exactly what they were going to face when they got there. They they knew it. They, she literally stayed with them the whole way. So when they walked in that house, they knew exactly what they were going to face. That's when it works well. But the reality is CPR is so critical because, you know, they could have gotten there, but had we not gotten control of the situation, uh, the ambulance taking so long to get there, man, we, it might have been a different outcome. But we'll, we'll, hey, why don't we do this? We're coming to the end of this segment. I want you to add whatever you want to add to that. And then we'll kind of close out in the final segment. But this is Kristen LaBeouf. She's with the uh, American Heart Association. And we'll continue the conversation on the other side. Talking to the people that help make the coast such a unique place to live. This is Coast View with Ricky Matthews on Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1. Welcome back to Coast View. We have my friend Kristen LaBeouf, who's with the American Heart Association. Yeah, she explained the American Heart Association has been behind the certification of cardiopulmonary resuscitation, CPR, for all these years. The role they play in education around that is incredibly important. And we talk, you know, very significantly about that. Anything else you want to say, Kristen, before we close out that segment? I, I really want to, just a couple of things. Number one, I appreciate you sharing your story with our board. It was, it, it was extremely impactful and underscores why people need to be prepared in the event of an emergency. You're, you're more likely to go into cardiac arrest at home um, than you are anywhere else. And, and I think that your story was truly the best case scenario. That was all the stars aligned. All, it was, it was the, the best possible outcome. The, the right people were there at the right time. The amazing um, 911 operator, that it, it, just the whole story is incredible. And, and it was really the best case scenario. But we want to equip people with that knowledge and, and empower them to know if, God forbid, they're in that situation, they know what to do until help can arrive. And we also want to make sure that across the coast and across the state of Mississippi, no matter where you are, um, if you're in the Delta, if you're in Bay St. Louis, no matter where you are, that when you call 911, the person on the other side of that is able to provide you with that high quality verbal instruction until those first responders can arrive. And so I think it's important, you know, we're going to keep beating that drum. You know, if people want to, they can go to heart.org, they can call um, me at the local office if they want to learn more, if I can share resources with them and how they can learn hands-only CPR um, until, you know, so they, they can learn that life-saving skill. 
I can't, I can't say enough how important it is. I can't say enough. It kept my family whole. That's the, that's the best thing I can say. And, um, so if you have an inclination, if you're thinking about it in this moment, don't let any time go by. Make Write down a goal. I'm going to learn CPR. I'm going to get certified. It's not that hard to do. The trainers are amazing. And you will be so glad you did. I hope you're never put into a situation like I was no. put into. But if you are, I hope you're equipped to do the things you need to do so you can save the life of a family member. Yeah. Lastly uh, on the list is a huge investment opportunity in Gulfport to create, uh, you know, working on positive outcomes in the community. Tell us more yeah. about that. Well, so the American Heart Association has a partnership with the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation called Voices for a Healthier Generation. We know that we need to ensure these this generation of children is equipped and you know to, to live a healthier life. They're educated, they know the importance of it, and that we're providing a positive environment for that to happen, right? And so this Voices for Healthier Kids um, partnership is investing $475,000, infusing that money into Gulfport um, to work on building positive health policies in the community and removing barriers to health. And so we're in the initial stages of that investment with an assessment of the community to see what are those largest needs in the community? What are the issues that we need to address first? Um, and we're working to develop those priorities and gather that data and develop those priorities. And then we're gonna work with partner organizations um, to fund projects to address those priorities. And so it could mean a variety of things. It could mean, you know, you talked about um, food deserts and, and places. We have food deserts in our community where people do not have access to um, fresh retailers, fresh food retailers. And so how do we address that and encourage people eating fruits and vegetables. And, and once you even, you know that you need to do it, do you know how to do it? You know, do you know how to prepare for, for your family to, to eat healthy foods? Um, do you know how to shop on a budget? You know, do you um, afford those foods? How do you make your dollar stretch and make sure that it's healthier? You know, it could be recreational opportunities for kids in certain parts of the community. No matter what it is, we're excited about this opportunity. I've been here almost 15 years. We've never had this investment, an investment like this in our community. And um, we are so excited because we feel like it'll be a ripple effect across the coast and we'll be able to mirror some of this work in other parts of the community. I'm thrilled to hear the Rockwood Johnson Foundation is behind it. I was the chairman, as you know, the Knight Foundation locally after Hurricane mm -hmm. Katrina. Knight Foundation made you know, $14 million of investments, including the Knight Center and all that. Adele Lyons was a, a mm -hmm. critical cog in that wheel as well. But my friend Alberto Ibarga, one of the things he did is he reached out to Ford, Rockefeller, Robert Woods Johnson, and many of these national organizations, national foundations. And um, one of the things that the Robert Woods Johnson Foundation did is he arranged for me to go to Princeton and spend an entire day there. And they had what they call community-focused day. They did this in the, in the wake of Hurricane Katrina. And I spent the entire day going to every segment of the Robert Woods Johnson Foundation organization talking about 
the challenges of coastal Mississippi and what what that's all about. And I was really touched actually while I was there because I got to see on one side you have this sort of the, the foundation itself and then you have the, I don't know if you've ever been there or not, but their building's incredible and they had this like common space in between, which is essentially their night center. And for, yeah. for the rest of my time in helping establish the night center, every time I thought about the night center, I thought about Robert Woods Johnson and what they were doing out of, out of Princeton. Hey, we have less than a minute left. Final Final thought. Well, I, you know, I don't know that I have final thoughts, right? I, I'll never have final thoughts, right? I just appreciate this opportunity. And we are so excited about the work that we're doing in South Mississippi along our with along with our volunteers, along with our, our supporters. And we can't wait to un unroll this project, you know, that we're talking about. We also can't wait to continue to do the work that we're doing and that we've been doing. And we're excited well, about Well, congratulations that. to you and your continued work in the community and your passion, your incredible board. Dorothy Shaw is the chairman of the local board. I could go on and on. It's just terrific to stay connected with you and to tell your story. Have a great day, and we'll see you tomorrow. Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1 on Facebook. Facebook.com slash Super Talk MS Coast 103.1. A Super Talk Mississippi Media Production.